0: Welcome to the Slapflex Podcast, my name is Brandon LaDae.
1: I am Allie.
0: And
2: I am Boomer.
0: And it's another spooky season upon us. Also another COVID vaccine upon us. Where I lost an entire day this week because so I got my COVID shot and my uh, flu shot for this year the same go, and I just like completely lost 24 hours. I definitely went to work and came home, but uh, don't remember thinking much during that time frame. Oh no... So I guess that's my reminder to go out and get your booster shots because uh, it's still out there and uh, still worthwhile, even though you will lose time.
1: And here's my reminder. I actually do have COVID currently. And while it is not serious, it's still not fun.
0: And here's my reminder to the listening audience that the Lanyap podcast records in separate locations over the magic of the Internet. Hundreds upon hundreds of miles apart. Yes, yes. So yeah. we are safely recording right now. We we are.
1: We are. Sorry. I, I didn't make I didn't mean to make everybody worry about us and <laughs> all that. We're not chicken pox partying this.
0: It is kind of wild thinking back like this Lanyap edition of the pod is entirely within the COVID era. Like I feel like we've been doing this forever, but it really wasn't until I had too much time on my hands during like hard lockdown pandemic era. And we started recording these extra episodes in between the, the flagship ones. Yeah, and
2: it was specifically because you had to learn how to record over the internet to do it with everyone who was local before. <laughs> and you were like, hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, I'm losing my mind. <laughs>
0: sure. Hey, I've been dragged into the 2010s very reluctantly, well into the next decade. I just downloaded Spotify for the first time.
1: Oh, am like God. really behind.
0: I was also listening to Belly today and their artist background picture is... Just the words DELETE SPOTIFY in all caps, so I'm already being shamed for my <laughs> recent choices. Good for them. <laughs> well, I'm going to assume, Allie, because you've been sick for the past week, you've not been watching much.
1: No, I have not been watching anything. Um am just uh, playing lots of Pokemon. Uh, completed my uh, Kitakami Pokedex, y'all. So, you know, all the nerds out there, I'm a Pokemon master. Sorry. Sorry you're not yet because nobody else had COVID and spent a solid week of sleeping and catching Pokemon.
2: I'll admit, straight up, most of what I've been doing lately is I've been playing a lot of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So, oh, we're both, oh there uh, we go. Kind of the same boat. I was putting together my list before we started recording. I was, you know, because I always do. And I'd kind of forgotten to update my um, spreadsheet with what I had watched. And I was like, wow, there's an 11 day gap here. And I was like, oh, that's right. Because I was playing Zelda and, and watching Yellow Jackets. So n- no movies in that time. Great Spotify playlist from the soundtrack of that TV series, though. <laughs> oh, I believe it. I We were starting an episode in season two this past week. And I was like, oh, it's Sharon Von Etten. And, uh, you know, I I generally love all of the music there. Um, They have really good taste, by which I mean their taste aligns closely with mine.
1: Good taste. Yeah. Uh,
2: I will go ahead and say that Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part 2 are both on
0: HBO Max. Are we familiar with these?
1: Yes.
0: I remember being a a really big fan of the second one. Uh, But, you know, it's been since I was a literal child since I've seen either. So I don't know. It was, I had only ever seen the second one and also when I
2: was a child as well. And so I started watching Hot Shots sort of um, just to have something that I could kind of have on while I did some exercising. Uh, And then I was like, oh, I can't watch this by myself. I'm not going to laugh enough. Even though these gags are really funny, I don't have anyone to like share them with. So I should watch this movie with someone else. So then I did with a couple of friends and they were not as big fans as I am. I was intrigued by these because I also saw Hot Shots Part 2 when I was a child. And my, one of my other friends had only ever seen the second one as well. And again, only as a child. They kind of disappeared from the public consciousness pretty quickly. Um, the first one came out in 91, and it's a parody of Top Gun. And the second one came out in 93, and it's more of a parody of like Rambo and... Apparently, the critics prefer the first one, and the audience scores in general prefer the second one, and I have to put myself in that second category. The first one is, it's fine. There's a lot of really great gags in it, a lot of really great bits. But for something that is a parody, it's very plot-heavy. Like, the plot of Top Gun is followed pretty closely. So... Uh, my biggest point of comparison would be my favorite of that, like, Film Cruise, uh, that production posse's output, which is Top Secret, which we've talked about a few times here. Um, in Top Secret, because it's more of a genre parody, they can do a lot of gags, and the gags come constantly, right? There's, like, you never go more than 20 or 30 seconds before you're laughing again. Like, they're so dense. And with Hot Shots in 91, although there are a lot of really great individual scenes, there's an awful lot of like stitching together of those scenes with more plot heavy scenes that are more reminiscent of just the movie Top Gun. So like you spend a lot more time in between the big set pieces or in between really great uh, sequences, just kind of waiting for the next one while they get a bunch of plot stuff out of the way. And I think that that makes it a much weaker movie on top of the fact that that first one also has a lot more um, casual racism against Native Americans in the way that it seems to be kind of parodying the, like, 90s magical Native American stereotype. But it still does it in a way where I'm like, mm, I'm not sure that this should actually fly today, where, like, Charlie Sheen's character is tracked down. He, he's playing sort of the Tom Cruise character. His name is Topper Harley. Uh, he because of a mission that he botched, he's gone to live with uh, a tribe whose like name I don't think we ever get, you know, clearly not, was was not on the minds of the filmmakers to bother with that. And when they're speaking, quote unquote, whatever this Native American language should be, it's just, they're just saying like random words, most of them like, you know, things that are common words in, you know, contemporary language that have a Native American origin, like winnebago and wigwam and then occasionally throwing in just random i guess funny sounding words like rickshaw it's not the best uh representation i wouldn't i don't love that um the movie moves on from that pretty quickly and then just becomes a lot of like very funny navy stuff like there's the opening sequence on an aircraft carrier where they're just doing all sorts of funny visual gags that have to do with the sort of things that you would see on that flight deck that I really enjoyed. However, Hot Shots Part 2 is is a superior film. Um, it's much funnier. The gags come much faster. It moves much more quickly between the individual things that it's parodying, where it'll have like blood sport kind of stuff going on at the beginning, because in this one, of course, Topper Harley has once again, you know, left the Navy and he is uh, living among some people in Thailand and he is engaged in like, you know, uh, blood sport type Karate, like in uh, Bloodsport, but of course it's all played for gags. So for instance, instead of like, it's not Bloodsport, it's another Van Damme movie. The I'm not, I can't think of the name of
0: it. Big Boxer?
2: It might be, where he's like the two competitors dip their gloves and like glue and then broken glass so that their punches are like much deadlier um in this one they like you know uh, they do like a caramel sauce and then dip it in like you know gummy bears and sprinkles and you know I, I, trying to describe the visual gags in this movie you have to see them you know they don't sound funny when you just tell people what they are it has a lot of great lines i, w- I would give it a big recommendation actually um it's very dated in the sense that like you can tell it's 1993 because saddam hussein is like a comedy villain in this movie you know long before yeah. he became like the american boogeyman for mo- much of the 90s and of course into the 2000s for obvious reasons um and saddam hussein's character is very funny uh you know they do a lot of humor at his expense that is not like racially charged like they would i think and if if he had appeared in the first one more than just a cameo uh, i would have been much more like mm, making fun of him simply for being Middle Eastern and his qualities thereof but what's funny about him in this movie is like how um westernized he is you know and that's part of the gag so i really enjoy it i would give hot shots part 2 a big recommend hot shots the first one maybe not it has a lot of really great funny individual sequences but as a whole it doesn't hold water altogether
0: yeah what you want from those zazz movies is like a gag-a-minute ratio that's like absurdly high yes. cuz we we just rewatched uh Naked Gun two and a half, I think, for this podcast. Oh, I love it. Last year, maybe. And I was just amazed that even while three or four gags were happening in the foreground, like, there were jokes in the background where, like, the extras were doing bits. Like, they were, like, piling as much, like, sight gags as they could while they were doing verbal stuff as well. I don't know. It was just, like, a really insane uh, joke to runtime ratio.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, like, in the era, you know, before... people had like streaming to rewatch things like they made these extremely like rewatchable like i know you know vhs was Yeah, it was the video store era but yeah
2: i will say i after watching those i briefly tuned in to try and watch robin hood men in tights and could not do it it was like that movie comparably like as far as the parody goes i know it's mel brooks and we love mel brooks but that is a very weak effort on his part um I got maybe 20, 25 minutes into it, and I was like, I'm not laughing. And this was one that I thought was very funny when I was a child. and must have seen like five or six times on TV, but as an adult, it does not pass muster. Um, and I, that's that's also something that you mentioned, the the sort of background stuff. That's more present in Hot Shots Part 2, where the in the first one, they will occasionally have a very dialogue-heavy plot, you know, narrative push scene, and they'll have a bit going on in the background, but not every time. And very often in the second one, they're doing much better bits in the background. They're much funnier whenever they do force you to have to sit through some kind of um, expository dialogue. Uh, I also went to the movies Thursday night and I saw A Haunting in Venice.
0: I'm shocked that you've seen this motion picture. Really? (laughs) No, I'm not sure okay. I was
1: wondering <laughs> if you were going to see it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think... I, I, don't I literally texted
0: genre. you, they made a movie for you, apparently, because I was reading about it. They kind
2: of did. Um, they kind of did. Uh, unfortunately, I, I liked it, but I, I, I didn't love it. Um, it's kind of thin, and it's kind of anemic in a lot of ways, where I have not read the novella that this one is based on, and it completely changed its title and everything. And... Reading just a synopsis of that novel, they completely changed multiple characters and their motivations just to try and kind of keep this uh, sort of seance Halloween party atmosphere. And that's really like the ma- the major plot point that carries over is that someone is trying to create a case that is impossible for Poirot to solve because the only explanation must be supernatural. And then, of course, he he does eventually see through it. Where this differs from that narratively is, um, and I I wouldn't think that I would say this, but Glass Onion starts in much the same way as this one does, where the funny accented detective is sort of a recluse and is no longer taking cases and is constantly being petitioned by people, but he doesn't do anything. And he's just sort of living in his like depressed house. And then someone comes along to present him with this impossible puzzle, and therefore he must join in. And so I I have to say that as like the whole, you know, Achilles in his tent style narrative goes, where you have the character who refuses to do anything and is sitting things out, uh, Glass Onion actually, I think, did it better. In um, this one, we're never really given a very good reason as to why Poirot is so withdrawn. It is set in 47, and it's 10 years after Death on the Nile. Uh, so I guess part of what we're intended to understand is that like, maybe World War II broke his spirit, but... Although there are many characters in this film who are directly connected to the events of the war, um, there are a couple of people who are uh, orphan refugees who uh, are adults now from the war front. Uh, There's a lot of orphans who attend a party at the beginning of the movie who there's some implication that they were orphaned by the war. Um, A couple of people were involved in the war as uh, medical practitioners. One was a nurse and one was a doctor who like was at the liberation of a concentration camp and had a lot of people die under his care because they were simply unprepared and unfamiliar with like what they would need to do to nurse these people back to health. So it's heavy. And it does do that thing that I like where you are presented with this idea that maybe the events that are occurring are supernatural, or maybe they're simply uh, natural and, and they're meant to look that way, or You know, you're given an empirical scientific uh, reason for the events. And that mostly happens in this one, which I do enjoy. But because you go in knowing that this is a Poirot story, and therefore you know that it's not going to be... Like, the murderer is not a ghost. Like, you know that. Once Poirot starts to experience uh, hallucinations and visions, you know immediately that he's been drugged. Like, as a member of the audience, you're never for a moment or at least me as a viewer, I never for a moment believed that, you know, he was actually experiencing something supernatural. I I could tell that it was like, oh. Obviously, it's the food stuff that he is mentioned to have ingested. I won't get into it because I don't want to spoil it, but like there's something that's specifically mentioned that he ate. And then you're like, oh, well, that must be poisoned or something, because now he's clearly seeing ghosts and having conversations with ghosts. And, you know, I know that it must be his unconscious mind communicating with him. And it's just a matter of time until the narrative reveals that. So when you have that in mind, and with a pretty thin story overall, it's fun, as it always is, to be like, ooh, you know, with your viewing companion, you're like, oh, I think it's this person. I think it's the doctor. I think it's the mother. No, maybe it's the nursemaid. And then you revise your guesses as you're watching it, as new clues are revealed. But other than, like, the beautiful shots of Venice itself, The canals and the buildings and you know they're all done with period boats and period costume other than that there's not that much to distinguish this from a very workman like bbc production it just doesn't feel like a movie
0: i was reading a lot of like ecstatic praise about Brana's camera in this and how it's like his best visual work since dead again which is like the only movie i've ever enjoyed from him uh (laughs) so I don't know if like just the gothic atmosphere of it, like hit people the right way, but that's why I was actually thinking that you would enjoy it more than the last couple movies. Cause I was just seeing a lot of praise for how much fun he has with the camera but you're you're making it sound like it's not very cinematic at all and people are just kind of overpraising it uh, it's it's just dutch angles like it's not bad
2: but it's yeah. it's you know i will say on the bbc they do not tilt that camera that no. camera is very steady it's very locked down oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. just you know that also kind of gives a, gives it away a little bit too right like once you start seeing dutch angles you're like oh uh, they've been dosed with a hallucinogen right? right like that that kind of gave it away to me but i didn't hate it I enjoyed it, but that's definitely one that, like, it does not demand to be seen on the big screen. I'm sorry to say, Mr. Brana, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're listening. I'm sure you care about our feedback. Uh, uh, I, you know, this is one that, like, yeah, if it's on television or once it comes to streaming, you'll probably enjoy it, especially if you can, like, pause it and all of that and go to the bathroom. But as far as the theatrical experience, it's not that demanding.
0: Would y'all be upset if you were asked to watch his frankenstein movie because no i already have you have okay
1: i have not and i would not be upset about it no
0: i've been watching a lot of frankenstein stuff early like pre-halloween prep for a podcast episode this month and uh i don't know i own that one on physical media and i've never seen it so it might be coming up to uh manage your expectations (laughs) i know it's supposed to be bad He's he's a bad filmmaker. He's a very flat, <laughs> uninteresting director who like always is high profile in his work. He was nominated for an Oscar like a year or two ago. Yeah.
2: And I don't I don't agree that he's a terrible filmmaker. That's where we're just going to have to like agree to disagree. But I don't I I definitely am not going to like go out on a limb for parts of his catalog that I don't think deserve it. I think I think that his I think that his, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is interesting. Like, there are elements to it that are actually a lot of fun and really great. Um And a lot of new and interesting ideas. It's just, overall, just manage your expectations before you go in. That's all I want to say.
0: What's, like, a good movie from him? Like, I, I liked Dead Again a lot. I thought that was a lot of fun. But that was his first movie. And that was a very long time ago.
2: Um I'm going to go ahead and say, once again, that I really enjoyed Murder on the Orient Express. I know that that's not... For everyone, I know not everyone agrees, but I actually thought that it was very well made.
0: I did want to see Michelle Pfeiffer be bitchy on a train. Like, that looked exciting.
1: That's a really good reason to want to watch a movie, honestly.
2: And then the last thing that I watched uh, since we last spoke was I have now seen Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation as part of our, as you know, part of my friend group's ongoing watch through of the Mission Impossible movies. I found this one interesting i think that of all of these movies whenever they've tried to give tom cruise's character ethan hunt like a foil they've always kind of missed the mark like you've kind of got jim phelps as the turncoat villain in the first one and then doug Ray scott's character in the second one is explicitly said to be like an evil ethan hunt and then in uh four you have jeremy renner as his like professional foil where they're clearly seeding him to potentially be the person who takes over this franchise when and if Tom Cruise ever decided to retire from um, falling out of planes and stuff. And this one, they have Rebecca Ferguson as his sort of like British, possibly evil, possibly good. Um, maybe she's a mole. Maybe she's a mole for the other side a character who's like a British agent for MI6 um, who may or may not be working with or against the sort of evil, impossible mission force in the form of the syndicate. And I love Rebecca Ferguson. I will watch her do just about anything. I loved her in Doctor Sleep, and she has had nothing but like goodwill in my heart ever since. And I think that she turns in a really great performance here. Uh, I love that there was another motorcycle ballet in this one, just like there was in Mission Impossible 2. And that is my favorite recurring element of this whole franchise, is when they get on motorcycles and do a bunch of nonsense. Uh, Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. And I was wondering, Brandon, since that one was the one that was coming out in 2015 when you were watching your Mission Impossible watch through low these many years ago. Do you remember this one very well? Do you have any thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, it was the first one I saw in a theater uh, because I had just watched all the ones leading up to it, and I remember really liking it at the time. And it felt like this like breakthrough for the series that they like finally figured out all these components and like it became a coherent vision. And then I think ever since then, Tom Cruise has exclusively worked with that director, Christopher McQuarrie. Yes, and it has since plateaued where all of the rest of the movies are just as good as that one. Like I just saw the newest one in theaters a few weeks ago and it is one of the better action movies I've seen this year, but it is like maybe the third Christopher McQuarrie, Tom Cruise, mission impossible movie. And like, now that I'm looking back and thinking about the whole series as you're running through it, I'm like, it is kind of sad that it's plateaued into this like well-oiled machine where, like, there used to be room for a surprise and, like, variance in the past. And now it's just, like, American blockbuster filmmaking done really well. But not necessarily with a personality as much as, like, John Woo guest directing for an episode. Right. I get the feeling that that's incoming. Like, I kind of had that feeling already.
2: But I'm glad to know that I'm not wrong. But they're all good. So, I don't know. I will say I kind of miss the more... Espionage elements of like the first movie and even into the second one, like there's so many more big set pieces. And I I thought that uh, Ghost Protocol, the fourth one, even though it had a lot of those big action sequences, there's the whole thing where Tom Cruise is running through a sandstorm for like a really long time. That one felt like it had a little bit more spy craft going on, whereas this one has sort of a weird James Bondian kind of feeling where you're talking. I don't know if it's just that so much of it involves like MI6 and there's like clandestine meetings beneath like the tower of Big Ben, but I think that what's missing for me from these is more of that espionage. Of course, you know, they have to break in and get the data, but that's really just as a lead into a set piece where Tom Cruise has to dive into that giant thing and swim around and the, you know, trying to switch out the cards and whatever, which just, uh, there's a place for that. But I kind of wish, like I imagine an alternate universe where after that first one, there had just been more really good spy thrillers like mission impossible the series was more known as like a you know they were more Palma, they were more quiet they were more um kind of bleak and dreary but i don't know that that could have happened because even though they seem to really go out of their way to avoid ever connecting the series to any real world politics uh, it's kind of uh, that first one is very much in that golden eye and 90s Bond mode of being like post-Cold War and where do we go from here and what happens next. And that as a genre just I don't think exists at all in Spycraft after 9-11. Because then it becomes much more about like world ending threats and terrorism and et cetera, Rather than like, oh, we just can't let our spies all be killed because somebody got the list of their names.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't think you're going to find a return to that anytime soon. Like the movies are all just daring you to watch Tom Cruise die on camera in some elaborate way from here on out. Maybe the biggest surprise is how much you will come to love Ving Reims and how lazy his performances are. Like, I don't think he, I've seen him stand up once in the past, like four movies. There, there there was a scene in this one where um the
2: bad guy is getting away and ving rames is like trying to find uh, he's trying he's supposed to watch rebecca ferguson while um ethan hunt and uh jeremy runner's character are like doing a foot pursuit against the bad guy before he can get out of this parking garage and they run a really long way and then there's a cut and then ving rames is right there he's like oh i lost ilsa it's like what how did you get here Like, I haven't watched (laughs) you move at a pace that's faster than a glacier,
0: this whole movie. And they were running for, like, minutes. Where did you come from? He moves even less as it goes along. And it becomes, like, almost a bit that, like, he just puts forth no physical effort. It's kind of wonderful. Uh, Also, um, Henry Cavill is incredibly sexy in the one that he's in. He's got this, like, whole Tom of Finland thing going on. I kind of forgot that that was coming
2: up. I've been, I've got, it's been so blasted out of my mind by the others that I've watched that I didn't even think
0: about it. Sorry to have ruined that wow, surprise Bryn, for you. <laughs>
1: I did not know that you were in, in that camp, the, the Henry. And I'm Catholic really not, but camp. it's
0: like one of those images that, you know, it's undeniable. Like there's something about <laughs> this Tom of Finland mustache they craft on his face that like, uh, works for you. It works for everyone. It's just a powerful image. <laughs>
1: You know, he's just coasting off of that, that whole, like, I have looks that work for everyone because just put me in a mustache and suddenly I'm hot to Brandon and then put me in a blonde wig and everybody who wanted Legolas, but more madly has got that, you know? So that's just how he's, how he's coasting by in life is being attractive, which, you know, more power to you, I guess. Quite
0: literally a movie star's job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Say your lines and look hot doing it. Uh, Brandon, what have you been watching? Well, I caught up with "They Cloned Tyrone," which you recommended in the
2: past episode. Yes, did you enjoy it?
0: I did like it. It's kind of a strange movie to latch onto, as you wrote about it. Like you kind of expected to be more of an outright comedy, because it is sort of visually and tonally a black exploitation throwback, and so you're kind of expecting it to be black dynamite, but it's very much not. It does not have that Zaz Hot Shots energy to it. But, you know, as a mystery, it's a weird movie. Like, it's about a drug dealer, a sex worker, and her pimp going on a government conspiracy mission where they go deeper and deeper into this, like, conspiracy against the black community. And the answers to the surveillance and the experiments that the government is doing on their neighborhood are weird enough to pull off what is over two hours of drama and some chuckles. Like it's, It looks and feels like a comedy, but it never goes for big laughs. It's like you're kind of chuckling to yourself and kind of in disbelief on where the story's going and what they're going to uncover, which works. It had me thinking a little bit about a couple of things. Um, one is that the people who made Black Dynamite have a new movie out right now in theaters called Outlaw Johnny Black, That is also a three-hour movie that looks like a black exploitation spoof, but it's a western. Um, But it's not that either. Like apparently, that movie is like weirdly serious. There's a very low joke ratio, and it ends up being this like Christian morality tale, uh, and more of a genuine western than a spoof of one. So I I think there's something interesting about how these like opportunities that are given to black filmmakers and directors to make weird personal cinema is like very limited. So like you kind of have to pitch yourself if you're gonna make a, a sci-fi freakout movie or you know a genre throwback, then it has to kind of like look and feel like it's joking about the past. Cause like uh I don't know, Black Dynamite and they clone Tyrone both share a very similar plot to Three the Hard Way, which is like an actual seventies black exploitation movie. And Black Dynamite is, like, spoofing it. They clone Tyrone is kind of, like, evolving it into a new, slightly different conspiracy. And, yeah, it it seems like their only path to getting made in the first place has had this kind of, like, jokey throwback feel to it. uh, Where, like, something like um, Sorry to Bother You is very hard to find out there, you know? Like, there's not a lot of opportunities to make your own weirdo movie without couching it in some kind of, like, ironic scare quotes. Yeah. But also, I want to talk about one of your favorite pet topics of recent years. Is that uh, I listened to the director of They Clone Tyrone on the Directors Guild of America podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, he was talking about filming and releasing the movie mostly under COVID constrictions and like early test screenings with the executives that greenlit it were not held in person because of COVID when they were getting like audience reactions. And he talked about the distinct horror of doing those test screenings online where he was watching people watch his movie through their like webcams. Oh, no. And like how
1: they were like
0: looking at their phone or doing anything else in the background except pay attention to the screen. And the number one question on the audience response cards was, Who is Tyrone? Which is very clearly. And pretty decisively, a punchline at the very end of the movie. So right. like, like that, like they had to retain that information for very long. <laughs> yeah, it's and that the just last like broke his heart. Yeah,
2: we've. It's the end. It's the end of us. <laughs> How bleak.
0: But I know it's it's a really good movie though, especially for a Netflix original movie. Like it, it actually feels like something substantial and personal. It did get a limited theatrical release. It was out
2: here for in theaters for a little bit. So hopefully they did that in order to possibly secure its opportunities for nomination um not that i think the academy is uh like great but at least it would encourage more people to check it out
0: what would you go for that like best original screenplay because it's got some weird places it goes maybe production and costume design yeah production and costume design are
2: really strong in that one because of the way that it's everything seems tied to a specific time period but what that is leaps all over the place like. Uh, You know, going into it, you're not really sure what year this is supposed to be set. You know, it starts out, maybe it's the 70s. Okay, no, they're talking about SpongeBob. Maybe it's the early 2000s because everybody has these CRT TVs. And then somebody mentions like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or something later, you know, in that first act. And you're like, what? And so there's a way that it creates sort of a timeless but very like dated production design. I think that that would probably be worth it. Uh, or probably be what they would be most likely to recognize them for maybe for score. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Tayona Paris is very good in it too. Uh, Not that she would be nominated for awards, but especially not for like something that kind of looks like a comedy. Like that's kind of going to shove her out the way already, but
2: not that she doesn't deserve it, but not that they will, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah. We never do awards forecasting on here. That is not our forte. No.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say what is happening? Henry Cavill's hot awards forecasting. I'm sorry, but what if you're not googling exists.
0: Henry Cavill in the Mission Impossible movie to look at him before making this comment. I remember the I remember the like
2: cocking of the arms as being oh the my thing God. that everyone was talking about when the movie came out. It's over
0: the top. <laughs> and on top of that, I guess I'll say the other long running uh, movie series project that I've been doing the way that you've been watching mission impossible is uh, the past few years. We've been watching the child's play movies every Halloween season
2: and it's taking a while, right?
0: Uh, It's been, it's been since 2021 and I've only got two left, but uh, I watched curse of Chucky for the first time last night.
2: I haven't seen this one. I haven't watched any of those new ones. How
0: is it? So this is from 2013. It is. Almost a decade after Seed of Chucky. So like they had that little run with Bride and Seed where Jennifer Tilly becomes his doll bride. And then they have a non-binary child named Glenn slash Glenda as an ode to Ed Wood. And it's all iconic. It's fun. I like those two movies a lot. I especially like Bride more than Seed personally, but they're fun. I would agree. But after that break, I guess the brand needed to be like rebooted. So the next one in 2013 Curse is in a old dark house. It's like a gothic horror film that just happens to have Chucky in it. And like what? there's this group of people in this house that are like spending the night, almost like Vincent Price is hosting the evening, and the doll mysteriously arrives on their doorstep and he doesn't have the scars and stitches from the last two. So you're like, okay, are we starting from the beginning? And it really does feel like it's a whole reboot of the Chucky franchise. And kind of in that like Annabelle way, it's like a haunted house movie where like the doll is the, I guess, catalyst for the curse and like the reason for it. I guess the boy is another movie that's kind of like that. And then as Chucky wakes up and starts killing people, then you realize that it is the same personality. Brad Dourif is still voicing the doll. Uh, Worth noting that his daughter, Fiona Durif plays the main character that the play revolves around. And then in the third act, like in the last 20, 30 minutes, then Don Mancini, the series overlord, the creator of the character, starts putting in details that make it more and more clear where this fits in the larger Chucky story and how it ties in to Bride and Seed. But it's almost like a last minute plot twist that like all the events that we had watched in the previous two or three movies actually still happened. Okay. And it's not like immediately apparent where it all fits in. I will say what is immediately apparent is that they were trying to make this scary again. So they do that firstly by plugging him into this sort of generic haunted house story. But then also once he starts killing people and, you know, doing misogynist quips the way that we all love him for, uh, he is very brutal in his violence. There's like, some Fulci eye gore in there. There's some like really nasty electrocution stuff and, you know, practical effects, practical puppetry, which in the 2010s was not a given. And, uh, eventually does tie into the larger Chucky narrative in a way that like almost feels like an M night Shyamalan style twist. (laughs) Uh, the way that like, yeah, at the end of Split, it's like, actually, you're watching a sequel. You didn't know it. Okay. Uh, it like, pulls the rug from under you. Hmm. So a weird, a weird viewing experience, but not a bad Chucky movie overall. With your
2: recommendation, I think I'll finally like actually give it a, a shot. What year
0: was that Aubrey Plaza straight-up Chucky remake? See, that was 2019. Interesting. And I really liked that movie, but it also does not feel like a Chucky movie at all. It feels okay. like they just had this unrelated killer doll AI plot for like the automated home era that they just like used the Chucky brand to get greenlit. Almost like Megan before Megan. Yeah, it's more of a prototype for Megan than huh. it's a Chucky movie. Okay. And for me, that's not really a problem. Like, I don't really care about series continuity that much. Uh, I know it just sounds like I did with the Chucky stuff because I was just very thrown off by the fact that this was supposed to be a continuation and it was hard to tell where my bearings were but to use the child's play iconography for an entirely new idea as long as that idea is fun and interesting I don't find that to be like a blasphemous thing fair enough I I think a lot of people were pissed on Don Mancini's behalf because that is his baby and like how he makes his money So, like, for the studio to use that without his input might have been one of the reasons why it got such a negative pushback. I see. But I think it's a very fun movie in its own right. And, like, it's kind of funny that just a few years after Don Mancini made a movie that was, like, pretty much Chucky in name only, then Universal got flack for doing the exact same thing with their own reboot. Interesting. I will say it's a little bit like the Alien series. So far, in that I've not seen one that I wholly dislike. I, I've enjoyed them all more or less.
2: You haven't come upon AVP Requiem of this franchise yet. I will remind you that we both like AVP
0: Requiem. Oh, <laughs> we both do. That's true. Okay, never mind. I disliked the first AVP for the most part, uh, but I really like the last 20 minutes to the point where it kind of turns me around on it when they when team up. I was going
1: to say, but the last 20 minutes is so <laughs> good. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs>
0: And that's kind of how Curse of Chucky is, too. Like, it might be my least favorite child's play movie I've seen so far, but the last act really ratchets everything up to, like, such a fun, bloody freakout that, you know, as a haunted house movie, it delivers. And as a Chucky movie, it eventually gets there. It's pretty good. Meet the student body of Central High. Bruce, Mark, and Teresa. Craig, Paul, and David, they get away with murder. Welcome to Central High. You're just in time for a massacre. Massacre at Central High. Rated R.
1: This week, I had us all watch for the very first time uh, Massacre at Central High from 1976. It is about... This high school that is run by these very, like, upper-class, snobby, teen California guy bullies. And they keep the school, quote-unquote, in line with a bunch of weird ideals that they have about how it should be. And in comes our main character, the new kid, David, who is in this school and is being taken under the wing of one of these guys who was his friend in a previous school named Mark. David uh, gets fed up with all the bullying and uh, stands up to them. They then bully him back and in a very horrific act, Smash his leg. And then he goes on a murdering revenge spree. That's the movie. Um, Of course, it's more than that. But I found this to be one of those movies that is more chilling with the context that we currently have for violence in schools and how people try to attribute the violence to bullying or people being outsiders. Then maybe it was even ever meant to be like obviously it was meant to be like kind of a scary morality like loose allegory about fascism um which it still is i mean it it we'll talk about that as well but to me like just given our current context this movie takes on a whole like new life and new context of being like Absolutely horrifying that, you know, there's one white guy committing violence at a school to try and right some wrongs. And I don't know how y'all felt about this one or that fact in particular.
0: I'm going to be extremely hypocritical here in that I just wrote a review of the movie Bottoms a few weeks ago where I said that critics need to stop comparing every single high school satire to Heather's Mm -hmm. and that it's always the go-to. But like, I cannot talk about this movie without talking about Heather's. Yeah.
1: I understand that. It is inescapable.
0: By the
2: end, it's almost textual where like, right. JD's outfit at the end of Heather's is the outfit of the killer at the end of this movie. Like I expected him to be like, pretend I blew up the school pretend I blew up all the schools. Like you really expect him to like deliver that JD dialogue.
0: And for a second, I thought they were going to get away with the original Heather's ending where the entire school blows up and then finally gets along in heaven, which is not what happens. Instead it goes like the actual theatrical Heather's route at the end. Right. But if you want to talk about how those things have aged, like people have tried to do a kind of, official direct Heather's send up or a TV show version of it or a musical or some kind of like revival of Heather's so many times in the past decade or two. And every single time they do, it gets delayed or deferred because there's a school shooting that makes it a very topical discourse bomb that like blows up in the, in the project's face and kind of ruins it for everybody. So, you know, I could see how it's like a touchy subject to have this like, honor code of morality being helmed by this kid in a trench coat who's exploding his classmates in this. Yeah. I will say, I think this movie has an interesting angle on that archetype in a way that I've never seen before though, where usually in the Heathers style, there's like a small clique of fascist popular kids who bully everyone, which happens here, Mm -hmm. but he kills those kids about halfway into the movie And then there's this power vacuum (laughs) that's immediately filled by all the losers uh, who have been bullied before. And it kind of turns like the entire concept of high school into this like Stanford prison experiment where like anyone who's given the power becomes corrupted by it immediately and becomes a monster. And that's when he decides like, oh, I have to blow up the whole school to like solve this issue, Uh, which I find very funny thinking back to my experience in high school, which is... Very much like this, where like I absolutely hated these yeah. like five to ten brutes who like ran my class uh, and were like absolute assholes, like broken bones in my body over petty disagreements in the lunch yard or whatever. And in reality and looking back on those years and how I acted and the person I was, like I was just as much of an asshole as those kids. I just didn't have any like social skills to like make my assholery someone else's problem it's the uh, Liz, liz
2: lemon, <laughs> person liz lemon yes. reunion realism. Yes, like. yes yes oh i actually was a bully too oh my
1: god yes
2: yeah it does it is interesting that it immediately as soon as there's this power vacuum all of the nerds like all of the bullied become the new bullies and you know mm-hmm. all, there's all this conflict and it's surprising because i guess sort of what happens is like a, a leader comes in and then wipes out, but doesn't like step into that void. And his only solution is to continue to like create more void. Like he he has no imagination about yeah. like how you stop a Hydra at all. You know what I mean? He just keeps lopping them off and they keep yeah. popping up.
0: He does escalate from trying to make it look like an accident. I guess he just doesn't get caught to like straight up Looney Tunes kills towards the end where he's exploding oh, yeah. while like coyotes left and right. Oh, uh, with these like um Acme sticks of dynamite that he like rigs up sometimes to like knock a boulder loose off the mountain to crush uh these idiot bullies oh while they're God, having a threesome. Dad. He killed Lizzie McGuire's dad with a rolling boulder.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Besides the fact that, you know, if out of all of the ways people are killed in this movie, you know, that's that's the one you should choose, honestly. And a threesome underneath a boulder
2: <laughs> while we're on the topic of these hippies there's so much nudity in this movie like love it it's i I'm not opposed. Yes. I'm just—it's very surprising because, in many ways, the dialogue, the performances, the sets—this feels like an after-school special. I was
1: gonna say it feels very made for TV, like after-school specialy, and then that like original song.
2: Oh, it's oh my god! What You're is with it? Of of life. Life. This is the, the heart <laughs> of horror
0: You're movies could come true i kind of love it just because it's so bizarre like the opening image of the movie is an explosion and then there's a montage of someone jogging to that after school special uh theme from *Masquerade central high uh song that like am gold track and then during that jogging montage with the opening credits They spoil everything in the movie. (laughs) Like every single kill, every single nude shot is kind of like foretold in that opening credit sequence, which is really bizarre because like without that, the very first shot of nudity would have been really shocking where uh, we happen upon two characters who are not going steady, skinny dipping together. And it's like a major reveal, but I kind of saw it coming because of (laughs) the opening credits being so weird and kind of like letting you know the movie's going to go there.
1: Yeah. To me, like what separates this from like a Heathers type thing to me is like it's kind of like I know it's weird and kind of like corny and stylized, but like it still feels more serious than Heather's like Heathers still feels like a goof, a dark I'm comment. sorry,
0: that dynamite boulder gag is a joke,
1: okay, that dynamite boulder gag you're right, you're right, but like this feels more like extreme in a lot of ways than heathers i guess
2: the thing about heathers is that there are adults in it and this does not have any adults <laughs> in it and that's what partially contributes oh, that to that like after school yeah. special feeling and the it's darker in that sense because you really get the sense that they have no ability to go to for help to anyone like even when those two girls are being like assaulted by the bullies early on they're like, she wouldn't dare tell anyone. But like, who is there to tell? There are no adults here. There are no teachers. Yeah, yes. There's no administrators. <laughs> there's no police until like the final scene where it's like an alumni dance. And that really contributes to that like grimness of it. Cause you feel like trapped like they do.
0: And the final scene where the teachers do emerge from wherever they've been the void, I guess yeah. uh, the only contribution is like, a student explodes outside of prom. They all go outside, and the teacher's like, "It's just a little fire. Let's go back and dance some more." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just like unconcerned the fact that like actual explosives went off in the school maybe forty eight hours earlier than that incident. I know. <laughs> and uh, a little old fire is not going to stop him from allowing the dance to continue. I do like that. You know, the after school special quality of it. Intentional or not, like the movie does have a morality to it. It has some kind, something to say about power structures within high schools, and maybe it was just trying to say that bullying is rampant. But the way it pushes past the original bullies being the perpetrators of violence, uh, and you know the sort of conformity cult fascism of it, to make the losers and the bullied into their replacements. Like I don't know. I feel like it has something to say about the fact that high school itself is the problem and not the kids interesting yeah we're all set up to bully each other because of how high school works
1: yeah so i mean that's also part of the political allegory of it too is like maybe it's not necessarily the people like who were the problem themselves more than like the system that allowed them to be there in the first place you know
0: i guess it telegraphs that like very early too because
1: the first time we see
0: them bullying somebody they're bullying him for drawing a swastika on the lockers (laughs) yeah we're like am i supposed to take the losers side on this (laughs) he's literally drawing a hate symbol on like school property
1: well I wasn't sure whether or not he was drawing it on one of their lockers. That
2: was my understanding, was that he was, like, drawing it on their lockers to call them Nazis because of their fascist, like, policy of policing the school.
0: That was his explanation. I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen someone draw a swastika on something I'm on their side. (laughs) Even if it is, like, ironically. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, we can't cancel him
2: because he got crushed by a boulder but if <laughs> if he didn't then you know i would be
0: for it if only everyone who was canceled was crushed by a bowler the world might be a better place
1: uh brandon you're going down that road <laughs> i,
0: <laughs> I want to talk
2: about when he finally kills that last of the original heather's <laughs> bullies when he kills the really ugly edgar wintry looking one by pushing oh his God. van backwards down that oh hill God. that railing is the strongest railing that i have ever seen in a movie <laughs> like it it legitimately redirects that van several yes. times so i'm with you brandon when you call it like you know looney tunes comedy because I, I completely agree like there's something very bugs bunny about turning out the lights so that like someone doesn't see that they're diving into an empty pool like it, it reminds me of you know the um the opera one Yes. Uh, whenever he's going backwards down that hill, you're fully expecting that van to just like crash through that railing as it curves around the road, but it it actually redirects his van, and I it meant that he had to endure like even more agonizing like liquids and things falling all over him in the back of the van, which was very funny, and and also <laughs> the bit where the alpha guy, the alpha bully, flies into the <laughs> Electrical wiring is very cartoony as well.
0: Yeah, uh, my bullies never offered to take me hang gliding. I really miss out on that like high school milestone. That was such a strange I,
2: I, I, to know that these are like teenagers who, without adult supervision or even apparently permission, are taking out these very dangerous flying mechanisms. It was. Uh, I was really <laughs> troubled by that because that's kind of the first, like, real, th- like, big indication you're like, oh, there are no authority figures here at all.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's the 70s. There is that.
2: The way that that dummy version of him in the hang glider continued to, like, nervously move, like, like it was continuing to be shocked through its body uh, when yeah. it hit the power lines. Great. This is like, this was a very, it's a strange movie because Ali, you know, it's clear that you brought this up to talk about because of just like how rampant violence in schools is now and how this like in many ways presages that. But it's also a very funny movie in those moments. And I think that that's where sort of those Heather's vibes come from the most is that like navigation between the depression of being a teenager And all the horrible things that can result from that versus, like, you know, a dummy flying into some power lines and, like, continuing to, like, just, like, spark forever.
0: The tone is very hard to pinpoint.
1: Yeah. It really is, yeah. Because at the same time that it's very funny, it's also, like, the scene where... Like, right before the boulder thing happens, where she finds a a stick of dynamite, and then he throws it backwards. You, like, 100% expect it to just blow up then. And there's just, like, moments like that where you're like, oh my god, oh my god. Where even if you necessarily, like, with the bullies, for instance, like, even if you were, like, okay, fine, fuck those guys. You still, like, have those moments. You're like, this is nail-bitingly tense. Like, what? Okay,
0: so the hang gliding, I think, is goofy no matter what. And maybe it was intended to be yeah. serious, but there's no way to watch that scene without giggling a little bit because it's such an absurd way to die. Yeah. But, like, the van stuff is silly but has moments that, like, actually I thought were sort of genuinely well done. I don't know, I had that recurring dream when I was a child that I was in the backseat of a car rolling downhill. Uh, mind you, I grew up in Southeast Louisiana where there are no hills, and this is not an <laughs> issue. But uh, I, I had this recurring nightmare where I, I was alone in a car, my parents weren't in it, and no one was able to stop the car as it like rolled through public spaces, and I was in the back. And I think eventually I was drowned at the end of it. Jesus. Oh my God. <laughs> so, like So that van thing, You know, it, it was like, okay, I could see the sort of terror of being trapped in the back of that not being able to get to the front to stop it. Uh, And there's also some really inventive photography, both in that sequence and the hang gliding sequence, where there's, like, POV cameras, the way that people shoot things with GoPros now. Yeah. So, like, there's some, like, fun, inventive framing in there. There's maybe some genuine terror a little bit. But the way that he keeps getting away with making these deaths look like accidents.
1: It was like way after the point where it's clearly right. not. Yeah.
0: And I mean, to go to the fact that there's no parents or teachers, there's also no like police officers investigating these deaths at all. They're just kind of accepted as something that happens to kids, I guess. Well, it's just one of those explosions. You know, you can't predict yeah. them. <laughs> I mean, I could see the hang gliding thing being like, well, they were destined to die. They go out there every Saturday or whatever. It was going to happen eventually. It's also very funny that they don't
2: hold back and make like the nerds too likable. Like, yeah, there's they're all such weenies that you're kind of like, you deserve to be teased a little bit. Guys, Maybe not bullied.
1: That library guy. Uh, I
2: hated him so much and I saw so much of me and him. I, I was so annoyed by
1: it.
0: Which feels, I don't know, accurate to just the lack of social skills that most people have around that age, especially if you're not well socialized. Other people don't want to be around you, so you spend a lot of your time alone, and you kind of like lash out at people when they actually do interact with you. Like, I I remember that. Have you been reading my diary? (laughs) Have you been reading my teen journals? Oh my
1: god, yeah. I'm glad that we were all teen shitheads. (laughs) In this specific way. I was so certain I had (laughs) scrubbed
0: my live journal from the face of the internet. That is still the thing that happens to me where I can't sleep. Is, like, remembering social interactions like that. Like, really small cruelties that are inconsequential at this point in my life decades later but thinking back it's like why did I act like that why did I do that why did I say that to that person at that time that stuff sticks
1: with you I think oh yeah I think we all have those moments where we're just like oh no oh no like I think it's funny you know because there's this idea that I feel like used to exist where people were like oh high school the best year of your life and I was just like no no like you could not pay me Any amount of money for me to want to go back to high school. And then watching this movie, I'm like, I was not bullied that hardcore. But like this just captures like the teenage cringiness.
0: Now, this isn't an unfamiliar template for slashers, though, where like a lot of the earlier slashers like Friday the 13th and prom night and maybe even some of the second wave stuff like uh, Valentine. Slaughter High falls
2: into this genre as well because it's also
0: like a high school centered one they're all about this like group of kids that bullied someone to death and got away with it and then like it seems like the kid they bullied to death came back for revenge and usually there's some twist that actually it's someone doing it on their behalf and in this one i guess those rules aren't really set in stone for these like proto slashers like this and like black christmas and stuff like that so sometimes the deviations from the template will surprise you. And in this one it's not a mystery who the killer is at all. Like we know David's doing this. Uh kind of like JD and Heather's like he's very proud of his work and will declare his reasoning for it. And at least initially we're
2: not like we we're not unsympathetic or even really against him necessarily.
0: Yeah. We do see how short-sighted his plan is, uh, but we get his reasoning.
1: I just think like, the thing that I thought was hilarious was his old friend who was just like, we're all gonna die anyway. And I'm just like, you know what this guy has done, don't you? Did this guy do this at his last school? <laughs> like, because he was talking about like, oh, I have anger problems, but I run. And then no longer run. Now we can't run.
0: Well, it sounds like the last school had the exact same bully problem, but more solidarity among the losers, so like, they fought back, which was what he was trying to get going at the new school, and no one had any gumption. Yeah, no one had any <laughs> like uh, incentive to help each other out and like team together against the ruling class.
1: Yeah, uh, so he had to
0: do it himself uh, with the aid of some dynamite, high school regicide, and,
1: uh, a few choice <laughs> boulders.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I uh,
2: that friend of his is played by Andrew Stevens, and it's. As a complete coincidence, I was recently uh, reading up on his Wikipedia page because I saw the episode of Columbo that he's in, which is one of the last ones. It's like the last episode of the second to last season. And in that one, I was like, why does this guy look so familiar? And it's because he also has a prominent role in a Murder, She Wrote episode. And he was the son of the main character in the 1977 film, The Fury, which is sort of like a proto carry that I watched and reviewed years ago.
0: From De Palma, right?
2: Yes. Yes. I always think John Williams first because I have the vinyl of the soundtrack. And of course, it says like John Williams, The Fury. It's so good. (laughs) It's one of the great science fiction soundtracks. It's like it got a great score. Um, But yeah, and it was so it was very strange that he popped up in this movie that has almost no one else that you would see in anything else except, of course, Lizzie McGuire's dad. I was like, oh, wow, it's so strange that he's popped up in so many things that I watched like very recently as someone I had never really even noticed or thought about before.
0: You would have thought that Mary, who was one of the two stoner friends, Mary and Jane, who died in that tragic threesome. Uh, You would have thought that she would have been in other stuff just because she's stunningly beautiful until you hear her deliver a few lines of dialogue. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, no, no, I get it. I really
2: enjoyed her voice. She had a really really wonderful Hepburn Fry.
0: I will be clear in that I love her to death and I will defend her honor until my dying breath, but she's not a good actor. (laughs) Great performance, though. I mean, generally, everyone has very flat, wooden line deliveries in this. It really does feel like a television special. Yeah, yeah, that's another contributor to that feeling. It's fun. Like, it feels a little perverse watching this on the Criterion channel in, like, intense HD. Yeah, And not, like, on an old cathode ray TV or, like, a, you know, really worn-down VHS tape. Yeah, it, it has been said on this exact podcast before. I'll say it every time this comes up. But, like, we are so fucking spoiled as genre fans to have these weird esoteric films just sort of handed to us on a plate in like high quality.
1: A silver platter, almost literally, you know?
0: (laughs) I mean, just a couple decades ago, the best you could do was go to major video in the cult section and pick up a couple of things off the the bottom shelf. But uh, the amount of stuff that's being, you know, restored to this quality is ridiculous. Personally, I'd never heard of this one before. I know it's got some cachet from people seeing it on HBO as a child. But uh, I don't think it's, like, a very popular one among these sort of, like, proto-slashers. But I th- thought it was wildly entertaining. Very odd. Uh, it was it was incredible to see it for the first time in this, like, pristine packaging. It looked great.
1: Yeah, it did. I'm not saying I didn't like it. It's just, like, it felt more chilling in our current environment. And, I, you know, I think, like I said, part of that is, like, the tone is hard because, yeah, it's goofy, but also, you know, some of the violence is, like, kind of intense.
0: I guess I'm never really a moralist about that, because these are all make ups You know, like, is the movie yeah. advocating for you to bring dynamite to your school to blow it up? Yes. I don't know so much. sorry.
2: I thought I'd do a bit. You can cut it if you yeah. want. I'm
0: sorry. I don't think it necessarily is. I think it's just more talking about the types of relationships that kids have around that age. And how much of a like shitty power structure every high school has. And like how cathartic it is watching someone do something about it. The type of mental illness it would take for someone to go into a school and actually do something about that. There are larger social problems about how that's not being addressed. How those kids aren't being given the help they need before something bad like that happens. Uh, than like someone making a movie that might be encouraging. Oh them.
1: yeah, no, I, I'm not saying this is encouraging them at all. I'm just saying like, given our reality, things like this become more scary. Is all like I don't think like somebody's gonna watch this and be like, yes, this is a good template for what I should be doing. Um, I think it's more just like living in our current reality, watching this, and knowing like what has gone on makes it feel less like fiction than it should (laughs) it did
2: have what what is that uh, targets the bogdanovich movie yeah it had vibes very much like that where it see it it's almost discomforting to see how much it would align with violence that was to come
0: And I think a lot of people actually have problems with Heathers too, for the same reason. Like uh, a lot of people watching that for the first time post Columbine, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, You mentioned the musical
2: and I actually did see the musical of Heathers. I don't know if we've talked about this before, probably, but (laughs) I saw it in 2014 on Broadway. And at the time there was a huge like outcry from like, you know, Tumblr musical people about the topic of the play
1: speaking of cringy teens yeah
2: and and it was purely based on like the track listings before they saw it and then so many of them i i saw one in particular who was like i completely misjudged what this was based on what i thought it was going to be because of columbine etc so interesting stuff
0: and i don't want to spoil too much about bottoms but uh there is a jd Slash uh, David from Central High style character in that as well. Oh, but okay. he's treated like a total loser and ineffectual. of <laughs> just brush him aside a bunch. Uh, which maybe is irresponsible in its own way too, but very funny as a gag. I'm really glad you brought this one to us, Allie.
1: Well, I'm glad Criterion brought it to us. And it wasn't a total bust. Like We didn't watch something all together for the first time. And then y'all are like, Allie, why'd you do this to us? And I'll be like, I don't know. I have COVID. Leave me alone gonna be my excuse for people not to be mean to me for the next like three weeks
0: hey it it alters your nervous system so i feel like you just hold on to it forever like i had covid one year be nice to me
1: like i said uh off mic i i thought that i might have gotten it when it was first going around and yeah like i said i I thought i was gonna die so
0: (laughs) yep hey i think the vaccines are working because they are when i had uh covid a couple years ago it was that, like, you know, every time you cough, you could feel like your eyeballs are about to explode out of your skull. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to think or move uh, for 10 days straight. You sound like you're doing better than whatever that was.
1: Oh, oh my God. So much better. Yeah. Vaccines work, people. Um, don't be mean to me.
0: And go get your dang boosters. I went to CVS. It was not that hard. I don't want to